following audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. You know, as I've already kind of made mention of, um, it might have been a little bit different of a Thanksgiving for some of you. Uh, probably something that you would, have antic- would not have anticipated um, months ago. Uh, maybe you scheduled a place to have Thanksgiving, right? Right? And, and that wasn't able to happen just because of circumstances. Um, perhaps, perhaps you as a family, some of you home right now, had to quarantine over this time of Thanksgiving. Um, or maybe for some of you others, it was just basically the vulnerability of a loved one that kept you at home. And Thanksgiving, you did not have all of those around you that you would have wished to have around you. You know what? That, that could be a little difficult, and I imagine it, was, it wasn't an easy day for some of you to be in that place. But you know what's even worse, if you will, than that? And maybe you need to look back a few years into you, the days of your youth to remember this. Do you, do you remember the parties? Or there was one of those parties in fourth or fifth grade, you know, or, or maybe it was, it was a party later on that your parents, you know, were glad you didn't get invited to, <laughs> but then you don't get invited. You remember that feeling of like just not being invited and, and like, man, it, wouldn't, it would just be great to, to be on the list one day, to just be on the list to be able to go to the party. Well, I'll tell you something, um, a number of Jesus' parables had, had a little bit of a party theme to them. A banquet theme is, is more what they would call it, and more specifically, a wedding type of banquet. And for us to understand fully the extent of what's being said in those parables, including today's parable, we need to understand something about a Jewish wedding banquet. I've talked to you about this before in, in, in years and sermons past, but guys, their idea of a wedding was much different than ours. You know, for us, a wedding, you know, if it's over 35 minutes, you're already starting to look with cross eyes at the preacher of like, come on, get this thing moving. Come on. All right. And then after that, you maybe have reception. If it's kind of extravagant, there might be a meal involved. If it's more like kind of the, the wedding that, that Donna and I had, it's just kind of a cake and a few little snacks, something like that, a little reception, and then people move on. Lasted, you know, from beginning to end, a couple hours at the most. A Jewish wedding banquet could last seven days. Seven days. All right, And all of them would last at least multiple days. So have this in your mind, and it was an extravagant event. I mean, it was expensive, it was extravagant. Now, don't get me wrong, for the more wealthy in the society, it would be more extravagant than those who are not as wealthy. But for everyone, it was, it was an investment. It really, really was. So have that in the back of your mind as we look to this parable today. A little bit more about the context of what's going on at this time. This is the last week of Jesus' life before the cross. Understand that. We call it the Passion Week, and we, have it, we call it that for a reason, because Jesus' primary passion in life from the very beginning was to die for the sins of his people. 
And this is why it's called the Passion Week, because it was focused on a cross. And it all took place in the city of Jerusalem. Now, that's a week long, okay? And this is day three of Jesus' Passion, his last week. Now, the first two days, man, they really hyped the crowds. And Jesus' popularity was way up there. And just to give you an example of why his popularity is so high... It was a second time in his ministry life that he cleansed the temple. The temple was the selling of sacrifice and stuff. It was a joke. It really, really was. Took advantage of people who didn't have a whole lot of money, and it was a horribly corrupt system. And Jesus went in there furious and cleansed the temple. Okay? And I'm, like I said, I'm not talking about disinfecting here. I'm talking about he drove livestock out, he drove people out, he flipped tables over, he said once again something along the lines of, you are making my father's house a mockery, and and, and the people loved it, they're on the sidelines cheering. The Pharisees were enraged by this, because all of that money padded their pockets, all right, and the Pharisees were very, very um, power and money, those two things were very important to them, keeping in mind though, that The gospel writer of John reminds us in his account that even at this time, there were believers amongst the Pharisees. There were those who believed Jesus is who that he said he was, but they would not say anything about it for fear of being thrown out of the Jewish council and thrown out of the temple or thrown out of the synagogue. They just wouldn't do it. Now... This is day three, as I've told you. The day three will end with Jesus completely, completely dismantling the Pharisees. The Pharisees came to him near the beginning of that day, and they tried to trap him with religious, social, and political questions. And this all starts with the religious leaders coming to Jesus and saying, who or what gives you the authority to do the things you do? I mean, you came and you, you did that to the temple a couple of days How in the world do you think you have the authority to say the things you say and do the things that you do? And Jesus says, I'm not going to answer who gives me that authority. I've already answered that many times and you won't listen. And then he does proceed to answer them again who gives him this authority in the form. But this is what his answer looks like. It's three parables. He gives us three parables. Um, The first two parables already have the Pharisees kind of riled up. They have a lot to do with vineyards. Not the the parable we looked at last week. This is his his last week. So different vineyard parables, all right? And the Pharisees already knew that Jesus had them in the crosshairs with those two parables. They're already not happy. And then the last parable that Jesus gives... To the people is again. It is a party parable. All right, so let's begin in Matthew 22, beginning with verse 1. And we're just going to kind of work our way through this parable and talk our way through it. Okay, so let's look at this. It says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables. Some of your versions might say he answered them. Um, there's very few. It could very much say that. So maybe Jesus is answering the looks on the faces of the Pharisees, which are not, <laughs> not pleasant looks at this time. Regardless, Jesus speaks to them again in parables, and he says this, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he went out, he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. Now here's the deal. This is the day of the wedding feast. This is the morning of, all right? Now weeks before this, there had already been an invitation that went out. 
Kind of like, maybe you see this in kind of the more fancy weddings. Mark the calendar. One of those deals, you ever get one of those? You know, it's usually a little picture of the bride, the, future, the bride and the groom, the fiancés, whatever. Anyway, so a nice little cute picture of them. It says, save the date. All right, so this has already taken place. The people should already have the date saved. And what happens here in verse 3 is this is not a save the date. This is the day of. The preparations are done and they need to come. He sent out slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. In the Greek, this is a present verb tense, and what that means is a present perfect verb tense. What it means is this, is they continued, continued to refuse to come. It's not like, like, no, I'm not coming. It's like, I'm not coming. Stop asking me. Don't ask me again. I'm not coming. I don't care if I was invited. I don't care. I'm not coming. You get the point? It was a continual state of, no, not going to do it, not coming. All right. So then, verse 4. Again, he sent out, the king sent out other slaves, and they were saying, tell those who have been invited. Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. So he sends out slaves, first of all, to make sure the people know it's today's the day. Come. They refuse to. So he sends out another delegation, like trying. I mean, just tell them, this is going to be a good party. I mean, I'm the king. All right? I've fattened the livestock. We're not eating grass. We're not eating pasture-fed cows here, people. All right? I've been feeding corn to these suckers for three months now. I mean, it is the fattened livestock. This is going to be good. Come and be a part of it. It tries to entice them a little bit. Verse 5. But they paid no attention and went on their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And then catch verse 6. It would be ridiculous if it, wasn't, if it wasn't, weren't so true. If it wasn't so true. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. How, how's the king going to, how would you respond if you were the king? But the king was enraged. And he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. By the way, that is, that's Old Testament doom language right there. Okay, if you, have any, if you have any footnotes in your Bible or cross-references in your Bible, you're going to see some back to the Old Testament, all right? You, you put that city, you, you, you burn that city to the ground. Okay, this king is absolutely enraged and he gets his vengeance, but that's not the end of the parable. Look at verse 8. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. That's an interesting word we're going to touch on more here in just a little bit. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you can find there, invite to the wedding feast. Who do you find on highways in that time? Now, like I said, these aren't four lanes, all right? These are, these are just the major travel routes around a city, into and out of a city. And who you're going to find there typically is, is travelers, sojourners, people who aren't anywhere close to home. They're going somewhere that they don't know anybody there, all right? Another thing you have from the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know what else you have along highways? You have some pretty tough and rough people, all right? You have probably some thieves, Probably have some outsiders. 
You have those who cannot be within the city, maybe because of uncleanness or something like that. So, so he says, I don't care. You go to the highways because I got this feast ready and somebody's going to come to this. He says, go therefore to the main highways, find as many, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with Dinner guests. So, the prince gets his party. Now, it might not look quite like the party they anticipated because the people who were originally invited were probably kind of those upper crust folks, you know? People, you know, people who looked a little more uh, maybe, how oh, just appropriate at the party. And they didn't come. They're dead now, okay? But, but, Those who were invited the second time did come. And the party was going on. And to be honest with you, it might have been a little bit more fun party with those folks. I mean, after all, they had heard what happened. They said, okay, we're going to make sure this is a fun party. Did you hear what happened to those other guys who wouldn't come to the party? We're going to make this a good party. All right, so they are, and as I told you, this lasts several days, and they are, I mean, they are eating, they are drinking, they are enjoying one another's company. This is a good time. And you would think that right there in that that place, Jesus would throw his tagline on the end of this parable that says, for many are called, but few are chosen, and it would be over. But we're not there yet. Something else happens here, doesn't it? And you see the odd duck. The odd duck. You know where the odd duck came from? I looked it up. Well, quack, quack. That's what they say. Absolutely. Um, came from, have you heard of the ugly duckling? Surely you have. All right. And the odd duck is, is what is pulled out of that old fable. All right. So we got an odd duck here. And whereas in, in the fable of the, of the ugly duckling, you know, it's not actually a duckling. It's a beautiful swan. And one day it's more beautiful than all of the other ducks. And oh, it's nice. It's nice. nice. This isn't quite like that. All right. This has nothing to do with anything different about the person. It had to do with something else. So let's take a look at it. The king has the party going on and he's sitting back. You know, you're Maybe some of you have married off a daughter or a son before. And, and you know, it's, it's almost done. You're watching all of your money that you spent getting used up by all these people that you love so much. A big old crowd, you know. And, and you're looking out there and you're just uh, trying not to think about how I'm going to pay for this. Just like, it's a good time. It's a good time. And, and, and the king, he doesn't have to worry about that. He's a king. He's got plenty of resources, all right? So he's just got his arms crossed. He's got that look of satisfaction on his face. He's watching the party. His son's happy. Um, the bride is happy. Every, hopefully the bride's family came to the wedding. They're not dead now. So um, hopefully they're happy too, okay? So, so it's all good. It's all good. And then he sees something amongst the crowd that catches his attention. When the king came... And to look over, verse 11, when he came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. What is that all about? And I know what you might be thinking. You're like thinking, well, the guy came off the road. I mean, he doesn't have wedding clothes. Well, there's two things we probably ought to know about this. First of all, with, I mean, we're talking about an extravagant wedding here. This guy's a king. 
Okay, and with extravagant weddings, oftentimes the the hosts of the party would provide the festive attire for people to wear. It was a part of the invitation. Now, even if that wasn't the case, by his questioning and by the response that we're going to see, it becomes very clear it was very much within the power and the ability of this man to wear something different. And he chose not to. It's not that he was unworthy. None of the guests were worthy. You got that? They weren't even invited originally to this party. The only reason they're there is because the first people who were invited didn't come. And they're dead now. So it has nothing to do with this man being unworthy. It has to do with something else completely. Verse 12. The king said to him, friend. You remember that word from last week? It was in another parable that we talked about of a guy that went to hire people to go into his vineyard. And you had one of them who was really, really, uh, the ones that were hired early, really upset because they didn't get paid. They thought they should be getting paid more. And you remember how that vineyard owner responded to them? He said, friend. Now, this isn't the friend of like, hey, buddy, come here. No, this is a distancing title. It's like, you are not on my level, okay? You're not with me. You're over there, and I'm here. This is a distancing. And, and this is what the king, he comes up to this man, verse 12, he says, friend. And already the guy's like, uh, that's not a good start to this conversation. He says, i got a question for you. Notice something. How did you come in here without wedding clothes? How did you get in here without your wedding clothes? Does this sound vaguely familiar to anybody? Anybody at all? And I'm not talking about biblical times. I'm talking about something a little more recent. How did you get in here without the appropriate clothing? You want to know these things? You tried to fly on a plane lately? My brother-in-law and my sister went on a plane. They said, you didn't have one of these on. You ain't getting on the plane. And if you get on the plane and try to take this off, you're getting off the plane. Hopefully you don't try to take it off when you're 30,000 feet in the air. That could be really interesting. All right? There's no ifs, ands, buts about it. You don't do it, you're gone. You get off. All right? I've known of a few people I've read about. I haven't witnessed it, but I've read about, because I've been to a few ball games, that um, there's been people escorted out of ball games because they refuse to put on this particular piece of clothing. Now, you can call it clothing, you can call it whatever you want to call it, but this should sound a little familiar to us. And this is the interesting thing, when you hear about people on airplanes or people at ball games or whatever the scene is, they, man, they're throwing a, they're kind of throwing a fit. It's like, I'm not going to wear that thing. I don't need to wear that thing. I don't believe in wearing that thing, okay? And it's my freedom not to wear that thing. And the owner of the plane, meaning the corporate owner, the owner's probably not there, but the owner is speaking through the attendants, says, my plane, you leave if you're not going to wear it. This is kind of interesting. Look what happens next. The king asks him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? Do you see any arguing? And the man was 
speechless. There was no arguing about, well, I, I, I didn't think I had to have it. I mean, you invited everybody. Isn't it my freedom to be here without? No, no, no. You don't see anything, anything like that here. There is no pleading the case. It's not that this man, as I've already told you, isn't worthy to be there. All the guests there at this time are unworthy. But like the first invited guests who are all dead now, this man refused to enter the party worthily. See the difference between those things? His lack of respect for the king who had the authority not only to invite but to cast out was a mistake. And the guy was speechless. He didn't have anything to say. What do you say to the king? Look what happens next. The king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this language seems to make it look like there's a little more going on here than the guy just getting thrown out of the party and then feeling dumb, like, I'm such an idiot. What in the world was I so stubborn for? All I had to do was put those clothes on, and I would still be at the party having a good time. It's not just a guy frustrated at his own stubbornness and, and his own foolishness. It kind of paints a picture that there's a little more going on here. Bind him hand and foot. Because he did not come worthily. And that's kind of one of those first hard sayings of Jesus in this parable. But the next saying gets thrown out there sometimes as a hard one as well. Look at verse 14, how this parable ends. For many are called, but few are chosen. What is that chosen getting at? You see, this parable ends with a powerful picture of God's sovereignty. And this is a parable where the stock metaphors come into play. And what I mean by that is not always, but most times in one of Jesus' parables, when you read about a king, it's talking about God. When you read about a party, it's talking about the end of the age. You read about a kingdom, it's talking about God's kingdom. God's people, or the kingdom of heaven. And this parable fits those stock metaphors very, very well. So when it's talking about a king, who's it talking about? It's talking about God. He's in charge. He's the one in charge. And this parable is a powerful picture of his in chargeness, his being in control because he is divine and he is all everything, all right? All knowing, all powerful, all loving, all just, all knowing. That's the God we're talking about. So, let's break this down a little bit. He says, many are called. Um, for one thing, that many used in the, in the Semitic language, which is the languages of the day, whether it be Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew, when that word was used, it often meant all. So it's not just like, Many are called. It means everyone is called. For many are called. That was the language of 
Jesus' day. So we see that this call goes out, and it is a big, big call. And so let's continue to look at this parable. How are they called? They were called by invitation. Slaves, remember? Servants, your Bible might say. New American Standard says slaves. They went out to tell people, the party's ready. Come to it. And the slaves in this parable represent the prophets who had been rejected and killed by the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament times. The most recent one was a guy by the name of John the Baptist, who was the last of the era, who was called by Jesus himself the greatest of anyone born of women. Why was he the greatest? Because he was the one who was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. And what happened to him? Killed him. So how are they called? By slaves, by messengers of God, by prophets, by preachers, by evangelists in the more modern of times. Now, what was the message? The message of the slaves, look at the parable. The message was simply this. It wasn't complicated. It said, the party's ready. The party is ready. Come to the party. That was, the, don't make it complicated. That was the invitation. It was the call. So the message of the slaves was the call. Come to the party. Now, here's the question. Because it says here in verse 14, many are called, but few are chosen. Look at the parable. How were the guests chosen? By their willingness to respond to the invitation. Got that? That's how they were chosen. They accepted the invitation. And they came. You see, according to Jesus' parable, God's election includes our response as well as his choice. And these terms might be different to you. Maybe these are confusing to you. Let me just explain a little bit to you. Debating God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility, these are technical terms, but this has been something I have done (laughs) ever since Bible college with theologically-minded believers and friends. Do it a lot, okay? It always has to come down to this. Is God sovereign over man's will? Can man have a choice in where he or, or she is going to spend eternity? You see, I believe the Bible paints a very clear picture of how God's sovereignty and the responsibility of people work together when it comes to salvation. Now, obviously, God's action is primary. He's the mover, the shaker, the driver of it all. But man is the one, a man or a woman or a child is the one who accepts the invitation. And I've debated this many, many, many times. These debates are fine. And one day, the people who are on the other side of these debates from me will find out who's right. One day. By then, to be honest with you, we're probably not going to care. All these questions we're going to ask God. Oh, I've got a whole list I'm going to ask God one day when I get to heaven because I want to find out if I was right. Because you like to be right? There's not a one of us who doesn't like to be right. Okay, but I got a feeling we're going to get to heaven and be in his presence and we're going to forget that list very, very quickly. So I'm not sure we'll find out who's exactly right. But there's something else that's more important to this than a theological debate. 
And I want you to listen very, very closely when it comes to verses like this in the Bible. You see, one time really bad believers, you understand what I'm saying by bad? Guys, we're all bad. All of us are doomed without Jesus to an eternity of suffering. But I'm going to tell you something. There's some people who feel worse because they look back upon the decisions they made in their past and they see nothing but ugliness and darkness and they're still feeling some ramifications from some of those decisions. It might feel a little bit like the Apostle Paul who said himself, Jesus Christ died to save sinners, of which I am the foremost of all because I persecuted the church. You see, sometimes, one time, really bad believers, understand what I mean by that, they sometimes struggle with this. How could God really love me? And they come to passages like this and wonder, am I one of the chosen ones? What if I'm not? After all, how could God love me after what I've done? This is a question that plagued church fathers even from thou, a couple thousand years ago almost. If you've been there, brothers and sisters, if you have questioned that, I want you to listen very closely to the message of Jesus' parable. And the message is this. And the question I ask you, if you ask yourself, could I really be the chosen one? What about this? Here's the question. Did you respond to the call? When God placed the call upon your life, did you respond? Because that's what matters. Did you come to him on his terms? I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, it doesn't work this way. It's not like, yeah, Jesus and me, we're pretty close. You know? I don't really know much about what he told me to do in life, you know, but he seems like a pretty good fella, and I think we're going to be good friends one day. Mm, yeah. Coming to Jesus on his terms. This is the thing, folks. This Bible that we have, God's Word, is very clear about some things. It has nothing to do with us Earning our salvation could never happen. Not the best of us could ever earn our way into heaven. But God put this on paper for a reason. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, did I respond to the call? And did I respond to the call on his terms? And his terms is this. He's in charge. Does that mean I'm never going to screw up again? No, hardly. But it's the goal of my life. To see to it that what I want and what my Lord wants gets closer and closer together. Because he is my Lord. And brothers and sisters, if you ever ask yourself that question of, am I one of these chosen ones? And ask yourself, did I respond to the call? Did I respond to the terms, to God's terms in responding to the call? If the answer is yes, then rest well as you grow in Christ. You are one of the chosen. Don't ever forget it. But if the answer is no, and you look back and you're like, I, 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 didn't, I didn't respond. 
I heard the call, but I didn't respond. That's not a good place to be. If your answer is no, or I didn't respond to the call on the terms of God that he placed before me, if my answer is no, then you better be talking to me or someone else today before you leave. And we need to have a very serious conversation about what it means to answer the call of Jesus Christ on your life. We're coming to our time of communion. Man, I messed everything up doing those announcements, did I not? This whole service is moving its way towards communion. If you didn't grab something, one of the cups back there for that, um, and after I pray here and just moment, raise your hand and we'll make sure that we get one to you, okay? As we come to our time of communion, um, Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, it's, we just celebrated Thanksgiving. It's that time of year where, where, where thankfulness is so much so squared away in our minds and in our thoughts. You know, I, I, had, I spent a Bayless, a Bayless Thanksgiving again this year. And this year it took almost two hours for the family to say that everyone was thankful. And the Hardens were down in Memphis. We didn't even have the whole family there. I was like, oh man, this is a lot of thankful. All right? But there's a reason for that. We got a lot to be thankful for. The greatest of what we are to have to be thankful for is this understanding. Now, this does not mean belittling ourselves spiritually. It's just a proper view and understanding of we are unworthy of God's love. But one of our elders, David Hershey, his favorite verse is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the love of our God. And that is something to be thankful for. He loves us. He cares for us. We are not worthy. But if you stand as a believer of Jesus Christ, you have been made worthy by his blood. You know, one of the biggest ties to this parable today is what happened to that guy? Why did he get kicked out of the party? He didn't have the wedding clothes on. Take a look. You don't have to do it right now, but you can write it down, look at it later, or just file it away in your mind. Galatians 3.27. Paul is writing to the Galatian people, Galatian church, they had a big problem because they were trying to add to the gospel. It's like, well, you got you to do this, you got to come to Jesus, but you also got to be circumcised. Okay? All right. Paul wasn't too happy with them. Okay? So they were messing up the gospel message. And what he's trying to tell them is, in Christ, we are equals. There's no Jew, no Greek. We're all Jesus's. We're his. That's our identity. You know how he says it? With that wedding clothes thing in mind? What do we wear? What are we going to be wearing in the greatest party of all time that's going to last an eternity? It's not a white robe, okay? I honestly don't know exactly what we're going to wear. But metaphorically, you know what we're going to be wearing? Galatians 3.27, for all of you who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been clothed with Christ. We're wearing Jesus. That's why when God looks at you, who does he see? He sees Jesus. And you wonder, how could God ever love me? 
when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. That's how. Well, 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 we have to be thankful for, brothers and sisters, amen? 